The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. This is a famous quotation from a Catholic, Roman Catholic theologian and political commentator by the name of G.K. Chesterton. I've read this all the time growing up. It's especially popular on things like Memorial Days when we remember soldiers and things of that nature. And I'll be honest, on the whole, I don't actually agree with this. I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy. Uh, I think you can both hate what's in front of you and love what's behind you. But there's a kernel of truth. There's something that Chesterton was getting at here that I think is vitally important. And I think it's very true. And I think it's this, that when fighting, it's possible to lose sight of and love for that which you're fighting. It's possible to so much hate what you're fighting that you forget why you're fighting in the first place. It's possible, in fact, even to love the fight and to grow in your love for the fight more than the principles or the people you might be fighting for. And if you don't believe me, I think that that is actually the message of our sermon this morning because I believe it is the message of our sermon text this morning. And in, in other words, what we're going to look at is we read the very first question of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is what is the chief end of man? And we responded not just that it's our job to know God. That is not enough. We are to enjoy Him. And so I'm going to ask this question to all of us today. Do you enjoy God? I know you know Him. Do you enjoy Him? Would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2. If you would read with me in the beginning of chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 7, and I would ask you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, I was looking at our upcoming uh, schedule for determining what our next sermon series is going to be. And what ended up happening was we have a, a couple important topical things that we need to cover, uh, specifically at the end of October and the month of November. And then December is not long after that, which I would like us to dedicate all the sermons of December to the Incarnation and to understanding Jesus and His birth. And so basically what that left us with was seven weeks that I didn't have a game plan for. 
But I didn't want to start a whole new book because I knew I was going to be taking so many breaks from them. And for some reason, the second I thought of, okay, what can I do with seven? The first thing that popped in my head was the famous churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where John, who is exiled on the island of Patmos, it was a bit of a prison island, he writes to an area of churches, which would be, for our modern day, this would be the, the country of Turkey. In Turkey, there were seven regional churches that the book of Revelation addresses. In other words, Jesus Christ, in his vision to John, gives specific uh, addresses to these specific churches. And so I decided this would be a good way to top off what we've been doing. We've been looking at Galatians and the pastoral epistles, and I think that this will be a fitting end to that. Let's take one more look at the local church and the gospel of the local church that we're called to defend. And let's see what did Jesus have to say to these seven churches. And obviously the word was written for our instruction. So what in the process is he maybe saying to us? So we're not starting a full sermon series. And that what I mean is we're not going to go through a whole book. But we are going to do a mini sermon series. We are going to preach through Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at these churches. Today's church is the church in Ephesus. This makes sense because this would have been the port city. It would have been the first church that got the message from John from the island. Uh, as a matter of fact, we see this in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Ephesus was a famous city already by this point. And the reason because Ephesus was famous was because that is a church that Paul planted. And that was a church that Paul was the pastor of for three years. So these are people who sat under the Apostle Paul uh, for three years. And you can read in Acts chapter 20, uh, there's Paul's famous goodbye as he goes off to Rome. And he gathers the Ephesian elders. And he gives them this amazing, if you haven't, if you haven't read it in a while, you need to go home today and you need to read Acts chapter 20. And... Or forgive me, I think it's, it might be Acts 7. No, it's Acts 20. It's Acts 20. If not, I'll send an email because it's really good. And he gives this final address to the Ephesian elders. So literally, the church that is receiving this letter is a church planted by Paul, pastored by Paul. And the elders of this church had not very long ago received this great exhortation from Paul. So this was a famous church in a famous city. And Jesus, as we find, we know that if, if you were to read uh, chapter 1, it's clear that the person speaking to John is Jesus. Je this, these are the words of Jesus, in other words. You might have a red letter Bible, these words will be in red. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. Now, it says specifically to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And this will come up in all of the churches, and so let's just cover it now. So this introduction will be a little bit longer than the other churches we look at. There is some uh, debate as to how exactly historically to understand this. So the word in your Bibles in the New Testament for angel is the exact same word for messenger. As a matter of fact, it's probably better to say it the other way. Because the primary meaning is messenger. And God has these special celestial divine messengers that we call angels. And so sometimes in your, in, in, in your reading of scripture, the translators have to make a, a judgment call based on context. Do we want to call this an angel? Do we want to call it a messenger? They don't know. They, you know, usually leave it with angel. But I would suggest to you, and most of the commentators throughout church history would, would be in agreement with this, this is probably not appropriate to think of this as like a celestial being angel. Uh, it's 
it's probably not, not probably, it's really not good uh, theology to believe that every local church kind of has this secret guardian, guardian angel assigned to it, you know, delivering messages and speaking to us. And if that is the case, we're in trouble because I haven't seen it since I've been here. But rather, this is just a more of a human messenger. But that still begs the question, what exactly is this? And there's a, there's a handful of theories out there. Um, but the two primary ones that take place, and it kind of depends on how you view the church governance in general, is that this is either the pastor of the church, or it might be all of the elders spoken to as in the singular as one unit, one person. So this is either the lead pastor or the pastors as a unit. Or some people take it as... Uh, in, in certain churches like Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglican, Catholics will have, they're all different, but they have models of governance where you have a bishop who oversees many churches. He has authority over many churches. And so some think this maybe is like a regional bishop overseeing many churches. Some see it as maybe more of like the pastor of this church or the elders. But either way, I think the context bears out that this is someone who has some kind of authority in the church. This is somebody who has authority over the church. And, and here's the reason we know that. Because he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is Ephesus's messenger, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, this is confusing to us only because we started in chapter 2. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus has already given John this mystery of his hand holding seven stars among seven lampstands, and he clarifies that for us. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So why should we see the messenger as having some kind of real authority? Well, because he is symbolized as a star. He's one of the seven stars in Jesus' hand. And all throughout the Bible, especially in prophetic literature, really specifically in prophetic literature, you will see nations and rulers symbolized as stars. The Old Testament prophets will talk about nations falling and they'll discuss that as stars falling from the heavens. The United States flag of America has 50 stars which represent these states, which the purpose of that is that the states are supposed to have local authority. Now, I would argue I don't really think they have that anymore, but that's a different lecture. So these are, these are authoritative people that are, that are uniquely held in the palm of Jesus' hand. They are the, the messengers of these churches, and the lampstands represent the church as a body. Which makes sense because what does a lampstand do? It holds the candle and the light. And what does a church do? It is our job to hold up the light and the glory of the gospel. It is the church's job to be the salt and light of the earth, right? That is our job to hold the glory of God out for everyone to see. So what we have, the, the, the symbolism is made clear here. There are lampstands, there are churches, and these churches have messengers, and John is receiving a spirit-inspired revelation from Jesus to these messengers. And the first one he speaks to is the church in Ephesus, and he is reminded before we break into that, that Jesus not only holds the pastors in his hand, but he walks among the lampstands. So before we really break into the content of this message, I want the beauty of that to sink in. That here Jesus has symbolized himself 
as having an intimate, unique relationship with his churches. That he not only holds their leaders in the palm of his hand, but he walks in the midst of the churches. I love the way Matthew Henry puts it. He puts it very poetically. He says this, Christ is in an intimate manner present and conversant with his churches. He knows and observes their state and he takes pleasure in them as a man does when he walks in his garden. Jesus told his disciples before he departed he would be with them to the end of the age. And we are reminded of that truth today. Jesus walks among us. Symbolically, not physically, not literally. But he is present. He is here. He takes delight in us. He holds us. He protects us. He prunes us. He loves us. But Jesus, because he loves the church in Ephesus, he writes to them through John a word of love, a word of encouragement. But it's also his love for this great church that he has to point out their weakness as well. And it is my contention that I think the strengths and the weaknesses of the church in Ephesus are particularly helpful for reformed churches and even just any theologically minded church. The church in Ephesus, I think, fits the bill a lot of the times. I wonder if Jesus was writing to Ephesus or if he was writing to us. Here's why I say that. Let's first look at what did they do right? Jesus didn't just come and criticize them. He didn't just come in with a sledgehammer telling them how terrible they were. He comes in like a shepherd. And he commends them for these great things. And I'm going to put it this way. I believe the church in Ephesus knew how to fight. But they didn't know how to love. They knew how to fight and hate what was in front of them. But they forgot to love what was behind them. So let's look at this fight. Let's look at their spiritual battles and the way Jesus commends them. He says in verse 2, the first thing we're going to look at is their endurance. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. These words are all similar, potentially could even be read synonymously. We don't know the specific details, but we know that the church is at work in their culture. They are performing good works. They are toiling and they have patient endurance. We know that the life of the individual Christian and the life of the local church at large is hard. It would be, it would be so easy for us just to call it quits sometimes. It's, the ministry would be so easy to just call it quits sometimes. But they're working. They're pressing on like a good soldier. They keep marching. Their endurance, they're patient, they're working, they're toiling. This is a church with great endurance, running their race at a superb rate, and they're not slowing down. As a matter of fact, he repeats this in verse 3. And in verse 3, he gets even a little bit more specific. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and yet you have not grown weary. In other words, they are being persecuted. Their culture is against them. Satan is ravaging this church, but like a good soldier, they are unfazed. It's like that 
I don't know if you've seen that movie Monty Python. It's a satirical, it's a joke movie. I don't necessarily recommend it. But this, this, this knight gets his arms and legs cut off and he still wants to fight. And his response is, it's just a flesh wound. That's their mentality. They're being pelted at all sides. Just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound. This is a tough, gritty, militant church. They're prepared to be in their culture, to stand their ground, and to keep fighting and to keep going. And Jesus sees that, and he knows that. And he loves that. This is a tough church. This is a church with endurance. They're not quitting. There's no quitting these people. But not only are they commended for their fight of endurance, they're commended for their fight of discernment. This is a church with remarkable discernment. Why do I say that? Well, let's continue in verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This is a church that the ESV says does not bear with those who are evil. This is a church who knows what is evil, knows when people are being evil, and they don't put up with it. My favorite translations, though, the ESV followed the King James translating it bear. There's nothing wrong with that. But just because of our cultural context, I prefer the modern translations like the NASB and the NIV and all the other ones because they say you do not tolerate evil. And that's a really important phrase for our culture. You want to know why? What is Jesus commending this church for? Intolerance. What's one of their strong, what's one of their strengths as the church? If they were to go and brag about one of our strengths as the church, they would send a messenger to say, we are an intolerant bunch of people. And Jesus says, that's an, that deserves an attaboy. Why is that funny? Well, because you didn't have to be a Christian very long in this country to have someone call you intolerant, but they didn't mean it in a good way. The Christian church has been slandered in our communities and in our culture for being intolerant. You know what Jesus' response is? Darn right they are. And good. Because here's the thing about intolerance. It has been abused and manipulated by our enemies so that they don't see the folly of understanding that intolerance is what we call an inescapable concept. In other words, it's impossible for you to not be an intolerant person. You have to be. You have no choice. And here's the proof of it. If you want to be, if you want, if you think I'm wrong, try your best to be against all forms of intolerance. Just tolerate everything. And guess what you'll have to do in the process? You'll have to be intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> to truly be an intolerant person, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to say, we at this church are, we are tolerant. We tolerate everything. So if you're intolerant, we have no tolerance for that. Are you intolerant of intolerance? How intolerant of you? In other words, intolerance also falls into what we call, it's not whether but which. It's not whether but which. 
Uh, see, the issue for a church is not whether they will be intolerant or not. Every church, every group of people is intolerant. The question is, which things are we going to tolerate? You can be sinfully intolerant. Intolerance can be a sin. But by itself, it's not, it's amoral. The question is, what are you intolerant of? Should we tolerate murder and rape in this church? Or should we be intolerant people? At least on those issues. What is the church in Ephesus being commended for? They don't tolerate evil people. And that's a good kind of intolerance. By the way, the same thing goes for hate. He brings up this similar, this idea of discernment of works in verse 6. Notice what he says in verse 6. He commends them again. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. How important is this verse for our contemporary age? Which sees a very sissified, effeminate Jesus who doesn't hate anything. Jesus is a God full of love, but Jesus is a wrathful God full of hate. Jesus looked down at the first century and he saw a cult group called the Nicolaitans. And he says, I hate everything they do. Who were the Nicolaitans? We don't know much about them. It was an early century cult group that followed a man named Nicholas and they claimed to be Christians. They're going to come up again. All we know is that they lived very immoral lives. And the church in Ephesus stood against that. They called that out. They had no tolerance for that. And Jesus says, good, I don't either. And again, why is this so important? Same reason. We live in a, we live in a world that loves to manipulate this word hate. People in Canada, and this is coming to America, by the way, you can actually be arrested for quote-unquote hate speech. I so much loathe that term, hate speech. Because it takes this broad principle like hate, but secretly defines it in a very narrow sense. Almost everything you say is technically hate speech because you're saying you hate the opposite of that. Yet again, it's an inescapable concept. Do you hate hate? I, I see these signs all over the place. I'll drive through the city and I'll see it in the walls. I'll see, no hate is welcome here. Hate-free home. Sounds like you hate hate quite a bit. Sounds like you're a pretty hateful person. You really hate hate. You can't escape it. There's nothing wrong with hate. It depends on what you hate. I want us to take note of this. The church in Ephesus is commended for Jesus for being an intolerant hate group. That's their virtue. They're an intolerant hate group. But they hate the right things. They, they're not tolerant of the right things and that's the key. They don't tolerate what Jesus doesn't tolerate. And they hate what Jesus hates. This church knows how to fight. This is not a passive church. This is a church ready to rage war. This church knows how to fight. But more so than just evil, specifically their discernment, they have theological precision as well. They're not just out hating evil and hating evil works. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say they hate the Nicolaitans. That's very important. Hates their works. Doesn't hate them. So they're not just out being intolerant of evil and hatred. But they have theological precision. Why? What does verse 2 say? That they cannot bear with those who are evil. Specifically in what way? 
They have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. Remember, this was a day and time where, I mean, John still lived. Some of the apostles were still alive today. For us, it's easy to say that's not an apostle because confessionally, we don't believe that apostles exist anymore. So yeah, it's really easy. If someone were to come to this church and say, I'm an apostle, I wouldn't even ask for evidence. I would say, get out. But back then, it wasn't so sure. This was the day of the apostles. And even though the apostles technically had to walk with Christ, we have at least one exception, and that's Paul. So maybe these people were exceptions too. Maybe these people, like Paul, you know, had an, a miraculous encounter with Christ, and they really are speaking for God. So here's what the church did. Let's hear them out. And let's test them. Let's test what they have to say. Let's examine what they have to say. You see their theological discernment? This was not a gullible church that just said, yeah, he's, he must be from God. Sounds good, feels good, I like it, let's believe it. He's not against Jesus, so he must be on the same team as us, right? No, they practice what is written in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. They acted like the Bereans in Acts 17, where Luke says that the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? Because they received Paul's word with all eagerness after examining the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. What made the Berean Jews so commendable? Because when Paul came in their midst, a true apostle, even with a true apostle, they said, whoa, 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 Paul, you better back this up with scripture. You show us from the text and then we'll be on your same team. That's what Ephesus is being commended for. The apostles came and said, okay, we'll give you your fair share. We'll hear you out. You show us from the text. And when it didn't bear out, what did they say? Liar. You are not from God. You are not apostles. They had amazing discernment. And this is important for us. Because there are certain circles that you can go in our country today where Christians will oftentimes find discernment to be a vice. You know, they will perceive you as one of those heresy-hunting, judgmental people who just nitpick and find problems everywhere. And while that can exist, so many people see any sign of discernment or a desire for theological accuracy is automatically falling into that group. Let me quote Matthew Henry again. He says this, "...in indifference of spirit between truth and error and good and evil..." might be called by some charity and meekness, but it is not pleasing to Christ. Christ is not pleased with us when we are indifferent to good and evil. He is not pleased with us when we are indifferent to true and false. This is a church that knows how to fight. They're fighters. They have discernment. They have endurance. But they do have a problem. They do have a problem. And that is that there have been a, there's been a very important casualty in their warfare. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
What is the love they had at first? The text doesn't tell us that explicitly, but I think contextually there's really only one option. It's love for God. Do you remember what you felt like when you were first converted? Some people it's harder to tell because you grew up in a Christian home and maybe it happened when you were young. Other people have something a little more in the realm of the Apostle Paul. But generally speaking, a lot of people understand when your eyes are first opened to the glory of the forgiveness of Christ, that's a feeling that's overwhelming. And this is why you will find new converts will often be so excited. They'll be sharing their faith. They'll be talking about Christ. They'll be evangelizing. They'll be going to as many Bible studies as they can find. They're at church every single week. And how do we always respond? That's the honeymoon phase. They'll simmer down. And they do. But here's the problem. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. I had the pleasure of meeting my wife not long after the Lord saved her. And she was vocal online all the time, sharing the gospel with her family, sharing the gospel with her friends. And there were people in her life telling her, like, eh, she's just, you know, it's just that first stage. It's like cage stage conversion. She'll get over it. And she used to lament with me. We've had conversations in the car. Why am I expected to make this go away? Why is that uh, permissible? Why are you anxious for that? What has happened in Ephesus? They fight well. But at some point in time, they forgot why they're fighting. Sometimes we love the fight more than we love the one we're fighting for. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that their love has grown cold. I don't think it's that, that, that phrase abandoned. I don't think we should view that as they have no love left for God at all. Otherwise, they would be an apostate church and Jesus would not have had these nice things to say about them. This is still a true church. They, they're still believers. They still love God, but they are disintegrating. They are growing apart from Him. They are losing their simmer. And Jesus puts it, keep your marker here, turn to Matthew chapter 24 for a minute. This isn't crucial for understanding the text, but I just want us to see that Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus literally prophesied these very circumstances. Matthew chapter 24, begin in verse 9. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 9. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. He's giving them these prophecies of terrible things happening. And I would, I would argue, there's debate about this, but I would argue that Jesus is prophesying something that's going to happen in their lifetime. Why? Because what does he say in verse 9? Then they will deliver who up? Not them. They're not going to deliver a people group thousands of years in the future up. They're going to deliver you up. Jesus is talking to a group of people here, and what he's predicting will happen is going to happen to them. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There's something about the increase of iniquity when lawlessness increases on every side and we find ourselves as a church and as Christians never able to take a break. There's always something wrong. There's always the next attack. There's always the next bullet flying at us. We just feel like we are fighting our culture and we're stuck behind a sand dude and we're just being peppered with heavy artillery. And when you're in that state of affairs where you're constantly fighting and you're constantly battling and iniquity has increased all around you, there's something about the relationship of those circumstances that make our hearts grow calloused. Human passions are like fajitas. Fajitas come right out of the restaurant and there's so much drama. Fajitas are so dramatic. They come out and no matter where you are in the restaurant, you can smell them. The smoke, it's, it's like, is this a magic trick? The, the server's walking through the restaurant and now the fire alarms are going off. There's smoke, the oil is bubbling. They put it on your table and the, the oil it literally burns your skin. You have to like distance yourself from it. And, the, and you know, the waiter has to tell you a million times so they don't get sued, do not touch the skillet. But what happens by the end of the meal? You can touch the skillet. And the meat doesn't smell good anymore. There's no smoke. There's no simmer. It grows cold. That's what we do. You met your significant other for the first time? Fajita. Five years into marriage? Grown a little cold. Not all the time. But here's what Jesus is saying. That happens spiritually too. We encounter the gospel for the first time and it's just overwhelming. The mercy and the love and the goodness of God. And then you're a Christian for 10 years and God is just kind of another part of your routine. And Jesus says, that's not okay with me. And here's why I am arguing that this is so important specifically for Reformed churches and for theologically minded churches because we spend so much time fighting fighting for theological depth fighting for theological accuracy we're not even just fighting the culture at this point we're even fighting our own churches who think that any sort of deep dive into scripture is a waste of our time because we're not focused on the lost and we're criticized as, as being eggheads and stuck in our books and we don't care about the world and you're so picky about how you worship you're so picky about the songs that you choose we are criticized even within our own camps because we care so much about theological precision and the response to that criticism is not to give up that that is what the church in Ephesus was commended for we need to keep up that fight but we cannot ignore what is on the text right now, which is it is possible to fall more in love with theology than the God of theology. It is possible to fall more in love with apologetics and winning debates than with the God you're trying to defend. This was a church that was orthodox by all accounts. 
but loveless. In other words, one pastor put it very succinctly. It's not enough to be right. That's not enough. It's not enough to be right. Unlike G.K. Chesterton, I argue it's good to hate what's in front of you. Hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Be intolerant of evil people. Test all spirits and reject them when they're false. Hate what's in front of you. But do not lose what's been motivating this all along. Which is not a love for being right, not a love for sticking to a particular stream of tradition, a love for the glory of God. This is a reminder that we have to be intentional to cultivate intimacy with God. We have to be intentional to cultivate intimacy with God. We can have all our theology right, but not have an intimate relationship with God. And Jesus would step in and say, I'm really proud of you for the theology part, but I'm not happy with the situation overall. Do you love me? It reminds me of the passage Jesus tells the Pharisees that you search the scriptures looking for life, but it is the scriptures that bear witness of me. Do you love theology or do you love the God of theology? And by the way, I, I just want you to know I'm preaching to myself. Far and above anybody in this room, I'm preaching to myself. As a matter of fact, how is it that, let me, let me prove that, how is it that we begin cultivating this love that's grown cold? Well, look at what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I can't speak for everyone in this room, but I'd be willing to bet many of you in this room, if you've been a Christian for some time, have a time in your life where your intimacy with the Lord was so much stronger than it is now. Jesus' first words, remember where you were. I personally, I think back to 2010. A young Colin who had no idea what to do with his life. I just dropped out of school for the first time. And I look back on uh, 10 years ago. I look back on that Colin. And if this Colin could go back 10 years, let me tell you, I could run theological circles around that Colin. 2010 Colin thought he knew about the Bible, but I think I've forgotten more in the last 10 years than I knew in 2010. And even now I know that I'm still not even anywhere close to the vast majority of the scholars and academics that I read. And they're not anywhere close to their idols. I didn't know hardly anything back then. I have developed and learned and grew so much in 10 years. But 2010 Colin really loved Jesus. I miss that Colin. I would trade the intimacy I had then for the knowledge I have now easy. I loved Jesus then. And it is so easy for me nowadays to be so caught up in my readings and caught up in my online debates and caught up in, in pushing my theological endeavors that I have grown a love for being right. I have grown a love for arguing from the scriptures. But does my prayer life really reflect that I love God? I miss that, Colin. And I wonder if you have a past version of yourself that maybe you miss. Life has just become so full of distractions with children and school and COVID and theology. Do you love God? Like, do you feel it? 
Is, 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 is Christianity just a philosophy for you or are we actually experiencing this? For, for all the criticisms I give of the modern church today, and, and they, believe me, they are deserving of all of them, the one thing that they do typically outshine Reformed traditions on is they care about experiencing God in an intimate way. The problem is I think sometimes they, 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 they give up theology and they give up truth to do that. But they care about, I, I, I want to actually feel intimate with my Lord rather than just be right all the time. Jesus tells us to remember from where we have fallen and he says repent. Jesus believes we can get back there. This is not just some natural thing we have to accept. Well, yeah, over time, it's just not the same anymore. No, repent. Turn around. Let me tell you some of the things that I thought of in my own life that reflect that I have not done a good job at cultivating intimacy with the Lord. And maybe some of these will be revelatory to you as well. If you spend more time debating on Facebook during the week than you do in prayer, I think you have a problem. If you spend far more time in theology books and fiction books than you do in your own Bible, I think we have a problem. Do you ever confess your sins? You'd be amazed at how much suppressed, unconfessed, ignored sins will sever an intimate relationship between you and God. Do you confess your sins? Do you talk about your sins? Or do you bury them deep down and you hide them? When's the last time you've confessed your sins to anybody? The book of James commands us to do it. Do we ever do that? Here's an important one. Do you come to church and do nothing but criticize. I didn't like the songs. I don't like the lighting. I didn't like the slides. I didn't like what he said there. I don't like the guitar. If we come here and all we are are bothered by the people around us, we're annoyed by that little thing someone said, by the children crying, that's a huge win for Satan. That's a huge victory for our enemies. They sit and they cackle and they laugh because they know that these people showed up in church, but we made sure that they didn't do any worshiping at all. They had no intimacy with God. They didn't feel Him or enjoy Him at all today. But everything went smoothly. In Psalm chapter 51, there's this famous phrase when David is in the middle of his repentance, and David says this, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And I ask you this, do you enjoy your salvation? Do you know God but fail to enjoy Him? I think I do a lot of the times. I don't want to just know God, I want to enjoy Him. I don't want to just be saved. I want the joy of that salvation to follow. I want to wake up every morning with an intimacy with God and a joy in my salvation that allows me to actually overcome my circumstances. But instead, I, I wake up, I get on my phone, I want to debate, and then I go to church. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And by the way, this was important enough to Jesus that he left them with a warning before leaving them with hope. What does he say in verse 7? 
or forgive me, verse 6. He tells them to repent and to do those works they did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. An important humble reminder, God does not need Redeemer Christian Fellowship. He loves us. We want to be used by Him. He doesn't need us. He could remove our lampstand. By the way, that's not kicking us out of the kingdom of God. The lampstand is the church. He's saying, I can tear the church apart. God doesn't need us. We need Him. He doesn't need us. If He doesn't want this church, He doesn't need this church, He'll take care of us. <laughs> he warns them, get back to that place where you really loved me. I like your fighting. You're fighting well. Keep fighting. But I need, I, I need you to love me again. And if not, I don't need your church. It's humbling. Jesus doesn't need us. But we want to love him. We want to be used by him. And so we need to cultivate intimacy with Jesus. We cannot let our love grow cold. And so let's end with a little bit of hope, though. Because that's how Jesus ends it. Look at what he says in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear. Which is just saying that these are spiritually discerned words. We need the Spirit to help us understand and apply these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is a day coming when cultivating intimacy with God will not be difficult. Cultivating intimacy with God will not be difficult. But in this life it is. But I would call us as a church to not let our love grow cold. We keep up the fight? Absolutely. Should we abandon theological precision? No. Should we abandon our deep Bible studies where we get into things that a lot of times make Christians go, why do you even care about that? It doesn't even matter if you're saved or not, so why are you spending so much time on it? No. We need to keep drawing from the well of revelation. We need to keep learning about God. You can't truly love the God you don't know. We need to keep learning about him and we need to get him right and we need to test every spirit and we need to test every wind of doctrine and we need to keep fighting against our culture. We need to fight, fight, fight. But in that process, we cannot lose love of the one we're fighting for. May we cultivate intimacy with God.